the lives that are being lost matter. And, you know, I sometimes sit there and I go, is there a show? I'm sure someone will have a fast answer for this, but is there a show with more crying on it than slasher say? And it's because, yeah, you, you, you know, also by virtue of it being a TV show, you fall in love with these characters or you, uh, you end up hating the hell out of that character. And hopefully maybe the episode that they die, we might pull off, you know, changing or later in flashbacks, you might go, oh, you know what? Yeah, they are a total dirtbag, but I can see how they got there. And I feel terrible about that. So we're sort of trying to chase that sort of. Hello and welcome to Spill Your Guts. I'm your host, Kevin Lane. On television, genre anthology shows have a special place in the hearts of horror fans. Of course, there's the timeless and enduring The Twilight Zone, and later the beloved HBO series Tales from the Crypt. Along the way, you have some solid entries, such as Tales from the Dark Side and Masters of Horror. But in 2011, Ryan Murphy's American Horror Story became a smash hit, and anthology horror was back in business. In 2016, it was a Canadian series that truly raised the bar for anthology genre television. Equal parts 80s gore fest, Agatha Christie whodunit, and sharp character piece, this series has kept audiences on the edge of their seat for four terrifying seasons. The series is Slasher, and joining us for this episode are the show's creators Aaron Martin and writer Ian Carpenter. Slasher has steadily become a fan favorite, and it's easy to see why. With her recurring top-notch cast, razor-sharp writing that earns every twist and turn without the audience ever feeling duped, and inventive death scenes that would make Jigsaw jealous, this is a series that understands horror and, most importantly, respects it. Having just launched their fifth season on Shudder titled Slasher Ripper, set in period-era Toronto and featuring some familiar faces from prior seasons, and another bit of casting genius, season four featured a scene-stealing role for legend David Cronenberg. This time, with comedy great Eric McCormick. Slasher continues to up the ante in every season. It's a series that has sliced and diced its way into the hearts of many horror fans, and earned its way into the Horror Television Hall of Fame. Aaron and Ian talk on the beginnings of Slasher. Why it's as much Agatha Christie as it is 80s Slasher. How to execute a fair whodunit. And why they keep killing Jefferson. So, remember. Everyone's a suspect. There's no such thing as too much guts, and no one is safe as we enter the world of Slasher with Aaron Martin and Ian Carpenter. Hey, Aaron, Ian, welcome, guys. Hello. Hello. It's very good to have you here. I'm. I, you guys are coming back from vacations. Yes. Yes. Mexico and Indonesia for me. So yeah, are you guys getting acclimated to being back into the horrible weather and back into the swing of things? Uh, I'm back with COVID, so I've just been—I was under the under my blankets for a week. 
Uh, did you get it traveling? You think like on the plane or something? It, it hit me on the plane. Oh, okay. The um, uh, symptoms when I was mid-flight. Gotcha. But you don't have COVID, and you're you're COVID free. <laughs> I'm COVID free, but I've had like yeah, I've had a I've had a pile of things that have made coming back, including getting stuck there for 16 days uh, because of passport issues, making all of this uh, a little messy. The return, I'm I'm missing walking around in sandals uh, every day. So I bet. I mean, there's where where were you Indonesia? Yeah, I was in Bali and then spun out of Bali to the Gili Islands and Lombok as well. Poor you, stuck there for 16 days. <laughs> yes, yes. Uh, I'm, I, I don't feel sorry for you, not, not even a No, I, I get it, I get it. Um, well, let's just sort of dive in first to sort of a bit about, I, I, you know, you, you guys both, I'm... I'm assuming we're 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 horror fans from a young age. Is that correct? I mean, yeah, I grew up in the like as a teenager in the '80s, which was kind of when all that like all those slasher movies started to really hit. So it's always been it's always been part of my viewing, I guess. Um, I just I remember as a child watching Halloween and Friday the Thirteenth with my friends and being scared and all that kind of stuff. Right. Yeah, and I'm the same. I mean, I and I'm old enough that uh, well, I mean, all this stuff was on videotape. So, so I remember Nightmare on Elm Street, like seeing that first one uh, on a videotape, and then with a bunch of my friends, and then one of our girlfriend friends called, and right when we finished, and we're like, "You need to come over here," and they were like, "We're hanging out with so and so," and like, "You guys need to come over here right now," and they came over, and then we watched it all again. Uh, the guys the second time, everyone just like, what the hell is happening? I mean, I think especially two of that like hallway scene where the body bag, which is one of my yeah. favorite scenes in horror period, where the body bag is dragged down that high school hall. And and that's a, that's a moment for me anyways, where you're just like, you can't believe what you're seeing. And it's not for gruesomeness. It's for, you know, a sort of inventive dream logic that just astounds you. So there was that, and then also my high school crowd and be, was obsessed with Evil Dead. Everyone like, and it was our—I would say it was our sort of Rocky Horror Picture Show. And people would, we would watch it as a group, and everyone knew every single line, and everyone performed it while they were watching and laughing their heads off. So, real connective sort of tissue, and something I was obsessed with for for years took a tiny break from it and then came back, which is how I eventually got involved with Slasher. I mean, I've always found too, and it's something that, that we talk a lot about with guests on the show that the sort of component of, of for horror fans and horror and often for horror creators of, of that sort of, if you in any way are a person that would describe yourself as weird or an outsider or a misfit, that horror is a great fit for people like that it's you know what i mean and it, and so i always found that that the horror genre was kind of the island of misfit toys for for young mm -hmm. people like if you were at all a little bit weird and you know and, and you probably weren't a jock or a cheerleader or one of the people that gets killed in the movies you watch <laughs> but it, it horror always seems to have felt like a safe haven for people uh that that see themselves as different or and other at a young age uh d does that sort of did either of you sort of experience that as young people? Uh, I'm trying to think if that consciously was the case. I, um, 
I mean, I grew up gay in Southern Ontario in the 80s. So, yeah, I felt like an other. But, um, yeah, I don't know. I don't. I, I just kind of like, because all my friends watched it too. They weren't gay in the 80s. So, I don't, I don't know. It just feels... Like it was just, it was just feels like it was part of the DNA of entertainment in like the early eighties from the early to mid eighties. It just was such a, such a big part of, of, you know, the first time people were renting VCR machines and watching them at home. Like you didn't even buy a VCR machine. You rented it and you rented a bunch of movies at the same time. And you know, those were, those are the movies that you couldn't get into in the movie theater. So you rented them and watched them at home. Yeah, I think you're. I think you're right, Aaron. Like it was so widespread, and I think about just even the movies I mentioned. Just you know, I saw those sometimes with twenty people in someone's living room, and there was there was which people miss, but yeah, the VCR thing. There were like it. There was some side of it that felt illicit for some mm-hmm. reason. Like you were buying pornography or something like that, and um, I don't know why. Like there was like maybe it was some of the stuff that ended up on video and how you got them and i think too uh, like at at that age too people were looking for something illicit as well it's like what's out there that we can't get and you know i mean i guess evil dead had the kind of weight of of that nightmare on elm street for sure didn't but then you know too there was just there was that period where there would be nudity and sex so so often with these things that it felt like a little bit that you were getting something from under the counter. A little ta- uh, yeah. taboo on some level. Yeah. Yes. Yeah. yeah. Which was really appealing, you know? Yeah. I remember us watching, um, was, was it Sleepaway Camp? Is that the one with, uh, yeah. yeah. So where at the end you find out that she's not a she. Yeah. Yeah. It blew our brains. We were like, oh my God, could you believe that? And yeah. for years of being uh, politically incorrect as 80s teenagers, it was something we often referenced. <laughs> right. Yeah. yeah. Yeah, it's funny because it's true. There was a sense of like, I remember as a young kid, like going to magazine stores and, and you know, being like, do you guys have Fangoria? And it was like, I was asking, you know, where you keep, you know, your gay porn mags. Like it was like, for me, it was this growing up as a young gay person as well. Like it was to me, I mean, I was involved in theater and all these kinds of things. And I didn't, I, I wasn't not a popular kid or anything, but, but I was a horror nut and, and there was something to me about, you know, because horror often had a female empowered lead and a, and women were given, um, in, in the horror genre something I didn't find them given in a lot of other genres, which was like, they were actually permitted to have a sexual identity. And, and in most other movies, it was like, you know, a, a woman was an object of lust, but in, in some of the horror movies I was saying, a woman could be uh, the character who was lusting after someone, you know, and I think mm-hmm. of like Angie Dickinson and Dress to Kill, who's, you know, sexualized, but also a sexual being. And, you know, seeing these movies at a young age and as a as a gay man and a gay young man and thinking, you know, wow, they actually do make stuff for people like me. Um, and I think that for a lot of young, you know, not just young, gay people, but, but, but just horror fans. Yeah, that sense of like, you know, am I supposed to be watching this? You know, is this, this isn't, this isn't something you can see, you know, that, that I would be allowed to see in the theater. Um, it's part of the, the fun, you know, um, especially when you consider now, like the way that people access things has changed so much, you know? Yeah. yeah. Cause back in the, when Ian and I were watching these TV at that time, there was no cable. So you weren't, there was, I mean, maybe you would get like some weird city TV movie at midnight on Friday. That was, yeah pushing the boundaries but for the most part tv was very very clean and very very sterile 
Well, and, and porn was, you know, whatever your predilections were, was was a little out of reach. You yeah, know? yeah. And, and so you would stay up so late to see, you know, uh, an Italian or European film or something like that, that you, you were fairly certain was going to deliver some nudity, whatever it was. You were just, you were, you were there for it. Yeah. Or anything Elvira would show. <laughs> yeah. 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 I remember watching Nightmare on Elm Street 3 as a kid and and there's a scene in that where the character joey who's kind of a, a a mute young guy he he gets strapped to this bed in a hospital with tongues by this do you remember I that the one you're talking yeah. about yep yep by this i remember that in the theater yeah yep. by yep. this like sexy nurse yes who, who, who at one point ends up being bare-breasted and i think it was the first time i had seen a woman's breasts in a movie and i remember being like whoa even though yeah. i was i'm gay so it didn't it wasn't titillate it was just that i knew like oh wow you're not you know i'm not supposed to see this it was just that yeah. thing i remember <laughs> that move i remember that moment in the theater and i remember too because i'm i'm not gay i was sitting with my my girlfriend and sitting in that theater and when when her shirt and i can't remember like i feel like it rips open or yeah. something like that the there was maybe it was the loudest noise in the whole movie there yeah. was this gasp with the suburban likely teenage bramley audience right. and it just sort of rippled through there everyone and i'm sure certain people i remember having this thought with my girlfriend beside me going like oh did i just was i too loud like you were <laughs> and i think it's the same thing you were yeah. just like holy smokes we are we've entered the the forbidden you know yeah i mean you know and i remember too the the actress who played that part was a very busty attractive woman and i remember watching it with friends and you know for them it was just like whoa she's so hot and for me i was just like there's a naked woman right now like it was just mm -hmm. and it's it's funny because i i i wonder if that same experience is even able to be replicated now because of the internet and you know kids have access to that we couldn't even have dreamed of. I mean, you know, I don't think I ever got my hands on any kind of gay porn until I was like in my early twenties. Um, so it's just, yeah. it's, it's such a different thing now. Well, and I wonder if that, I wonder, that's interesting. Like that's a, that's such a good question. Like I wonder if that accounts for what I feel like is a slightly, uh, a lack of the sort of mandatory nudity that you would used to see in, in horror movies. You don't really see it much now. And also, too, it's a thing that I've bemoaned at times. Like, I feel like there's almost a sort of childish sort of haze code approach to sex in TV and movies all the time. Now oh, yeah. That yeah. doesn't make sense where I'm like, two characters get together and then we cut to them waking up in bed. And I'm like, this is insane. There's a huge amount of story and character present in two people getting together. And it doesn't mean you need to see something super explicit, but I think those minutes at the very least into whatever kind of sex they're going to have is so, so important. And we don't see it anywhere now. And I wonder if it's, you know, or rarely like maybe euphoria or something like that. And I wonder if it's cause we're, yeah, we're inundated with, with those options. You see it on interview with a vampire. Yes. Yeah. yeah. That's a great show. Yeah. It's a great show. Um, yeah, it's funny. It, it's something that has been talked about with quite a few uh, different filmmakers I've had on the show is kind of the, there was one guest I had on the show, um, director named Richard Elfman, Danny Elfman's brother. And he was talking about how 
in the 80s when he first started making films he made a movie called the forbidden zone which was a very like Mm. crazy out there movie and he was talking about in the 80s how censorship was coming very much from the right and he said now it kind of feels like it's coming more from the left through this skewed version of of wokeness and and he's yeah. like, you know, it's it, it seems to, you know, I guess it back and forth, but either way, it still boils down to the same thing. He's like, now, if I want to show bare breasts in my movie, I'm a pervert. It's it's like it's a, you know, it's 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 what are you doing? That's that's not you can't put that in a movie anymore. He's just like, when did it become a bad thing to have some titillation in a movie? Wasn't it part of the fun at at points? Can't it be fun to enjoy sexuality in film? And and I think it that's true i think it's very weird that if the you know I, to me as a as a, a filmmaker and a writer it's if a big part of the job is to explore you know the human condition and and look at relationships and the reality of how how do you extract go everything but sex which that can't we can't explore that mm-hmm. uh, to me it's we are kind of in a weird a weirdish kind of almost prudy time around that topic um, i think part of the problem is that there were so many years where it was done so irresponsibly that yeah if i was an actor i'd be like new no. yeah 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 you i mean you want it i mean as with every decision you want it weighted obviously this is what you're leaning into aaron like you want it weighted with uh character and plot and and it's there for a reason and i think too you know, you, you, you probably or possibly want it balanced. Like I know we felt that in season three of Slasher, which was very much about, you know, it was about many things, but a a huge element of it was about uh, the impact of a very sexual guy uh, on, on a building, someone who, uh, or on a community within a building. And so it was important that, um, you know, that we were showing male nudity along with female nudity um, through all those kind of stories and straight and gay and you know that the whole thing was sort of balanced and it felt like the air we were b- breathing rather than which isn't an unusual request too on you know from a certain network or or um, company that might say hey we need mm-hmm. we need some nudity this is what this is the request for for the film for us right. no one was making that request on us but it was you know we were adamant that we have a a balanced yeah i mean i remember i, I made a, a a slasher film i don't know it was like 12 years ago i think i did it and and um george romero and i had become friends at the time and i showed the film to george and he got oh this is interesting and i went what he said you've got more naked dudes in this movie than women and i went yeah and he was yeah. like finally someone's playing it fair good for you kevin and i was i yeah. thought it was great that he he even though george is a heter- was a heterosexual guy he thought that was great he was just like you know it's always, it's always been so unfair in 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 film you know it's um and that was something that i think at that age i was like deliberately trying to re- address the balance a bit i was like <laughs> you know growing up watching 80s horror mm-hmm. i was like it was always naked girls but if you wanted to see you know even a guy with his shirt yeah. off it was like that was the height of the excitement you were getting in terms of sexuality as a as a, as a horror fan or, or just in movies in general um you know it's funny you see some of these 80s movies a lot of them are slasher films now that that are of course are sort of very coded gay genre films um and i think it's kind of great now though that 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 in television and film that that lgbtq filmmakers are and 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 
just, you know, creative people are able to explore those spaces without having to code it at all. Um, you know, because that's, that's relatively newish. So one thing I was curious about was for, for each of you guys, what the first movie was you remember seeing or show that actually like scared the shit out of you, like really scared you. Was it, was it fun or like campy, but actually was scary. Uh, for me, it was, um, Salem's lot. There was a 1970s, uh, miniseries of it. Yeah. The Toby Hooper series. Yeah. There's the scene where the kid flies up to the window he's, does, is, and he starts knocking or scratching on it. And, and I think if you ask a lot of people my age, that would, that would be up there with the scariest thing you ever saw. And you watch it now, it's not scary. But back then, it was really scary. Yeah. You know what, Aaron? That, that one has come up with a, a bunch of people that, you know, of, of around, you know, that grew up in the 80s or around that time. Chris Alexander, the former editor of Fangoria magazine, uh, it worships that movie and particularly he loves that scene. He he talked about that when he was on the show because he sort of just kind of gently scratches it. it. There's something about the way he does it. He doesn't yeah. tap or knock. He just sort of gently drags these nails, makes this horrible kind of sound down the glass. It's a yeah. terrifying and I think sequence. Also, he's a dead child. So if you're a kid watching a movie and there's a dead child floating out your window, it's it's pretty scary. And he's coming after an, another child. Yeah, yeah. Totally. What about you, Ian? I think, I mean, it's interesting listening to you guys talk about it and I go like, how often am I, am I scared or was I scared? And I, and I think often for me, it's around what I will or won't see. And so a, a big moment for me was the first time I saw uh, Friday the 13th, which I saw on TV. And of course I had heard a ton about, and it was probably late night and, and and the first kill where, you know, the woman jumps out of the Jeep, runs into the woods. Uh, she's pursued, held up against the tree. Yeah, all from the POV of the cut. killer. Yeah, um, yeah. From the, yeah. And that, that, that rocked my world. Like I, I could not believe what I'd seen. I just, I didn't, at that moment, I didn't know that was allowed um, or existed or it just, it just cracked me, you know? And, um, and I think like, it's weird. Like, was I scared? I like, I was scared. I think about the existence of this, like it's, and I kept watching of course, and I suppose I wanted to see it, but it like that, I think that probably gave me as a, as a young viewer, the biggest flutter. And it's interesting if I think about other things, you know, something else would be video drawn by Cronenberg which back to us talking about the illicit, like, you know, that felt hundred percent illegal. I mean, it was, it was partially about that, right. Was, you know, these underground kind yes. of, yeah. you know, videotape swaps. Yeah. 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 So yeah. I think yeah. there's almost for me often like, I'm more like, Oh my God, what am I going to see? Am I going to see this? Like there's that, there's that, I think that's where my fear lives. I so rarely get legit scared Except for, you know, things like, and I saw this when I was older, like, you know, um, The Exorcist and stuff like that. that I was just going to say, that, that by far, the movie that people answer this question to the most is The Exorcist. By far. <laughs> you know, I, I avoided The Exorcist because I always thought it was going to be too scary. And then I saw it about five years ago, and I wasn't scared. Did you like it, though? Yeah, I didn't love it. I went with Lucy, Lucy Paget, who's one of our writers on Slasher. She and I went to a TIFF screening of it. Yeah. They had like 
And I was expecting it to be, I think because I just built it up so much in my right. brain, I thought it was the scariest thing ever. And I was like, mm, kind of creepy when she's doing some stuff with the cross and her lower part of her body, but, and maybe crawling down the stairs. But otherwise I was a bit like, eh. I remember the part of that movie that, that, that had the biggest effect on me is when they do the spinal tap on her, because it, that's a real thing. It was being done to this little girl. And I remember, and it was so, it was, I mean, it was filmed. Uh, what's his name that directed it? Um, Freakin'. Freakin', thank you. I don't know what's, why I'm forgetting names today. Freakin' uh, filmed it so matter-of-factly, almost like a like a medical procedure. Like, he just, you know, and I think that's what's so great about some of the 70s genre films that were made is they were made by these directors who had come from, like, documentary backgrounds and stuff, and they, like, to like Toby Hooper with Texas Chainsaw and stuff like that, and and Carpenter, you know, they had, these guys had these, these real, they didn't, they didn't come from music video backgrounds, so they didn't have all this gloss and these toys that, yeah. that a lot of the guys that, mm -hmm. that you know, kind of in the 90s who started making horror films were using a lot of, of these kinds of bells and whistles that, that they figured out on music videos. I mean, obviously guys like Fincher, who, mm -hmm. whose background like that, uh, you know, figured out a happy balance, but you look at some of the 90s horror, and it's so kind of WB. <laughs> like, it's so... Uh, it's like Buffy with an R rating. Um, and Buffy was great. A lot of it's not as good mm. as Buffy, but, uh, um, what was, what was some of the shows or movies, genre shows or movies in 2022 that you guys really responded to? Uh, I, I re what was, was the movie called X? Was that the name? Of yeah. The X. Yeah. The Ty West yeah. film. Yeah. 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 I love that as well. That was so good. That, that the back half or is it maybe back third or quarter of that movie is, is fantastic. I mean, it's such a, I, I'm, I'm being obscure in case someone still hasn't seen it, but like, Oh, people drop spoilers on this all the time. Such the a assumption great... is that people have watched these things. Yeah. Okay, yeah. <laughs> yeah. 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 I mean, seeing, seeing older killers yeah. like that was, yeah, was such yeah, a, I remember turning to my smart. husband in that movie and saying, I think this is the first time I've ever seen a horror movie where the villain is an elderly woman and not like some witch or something. And, and it's, and it's basically about her sex drive. <laughs> like it, it was such a unique perspective yeah, on, yeah, on, yeah. on an antagonist for a horror movie. Um, did you see the other one, Pearl, the, the, the prequel? Not yet. No, I did. And it, it didn't, uh, it, it just didn't have the weight of the, the other for me. Uh, um, yeah, I'm gonna have to think about these things. Uh, I will say, uh, Watcher, is it? No, the movie. Oh, wasn't that? Oh, I loved that film. I thought it was so scary. It was so intense. And, and I just, it has this creeping dread from the first frame that it keeps through the whole movie. Yeah. Fantastic yeah. film. It's so good. Yeah. It's so, and, it, yeah. and it's so beautifully done. Like it's, you know, just got a, uh, why, why does this equal good? It doesn't always, but it's just had such a great sort of art film aesthetic feels and, very european yeah, very yeah. kind of italian horror almost style to it yeah 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 that felt really amazing and it's hilarious i'm trying to remember i don't i think my wife did watch or i was wondering if she's walking through and just like the reactions which are just so much fun of just like oh my god don't do i have no respect for you now you are an idiot you you yeah. know you deserve everything yeah. like it's that kind of thing is uh is is so much fun so that was that was big for me yeah it was fantastic um i dug the uh the new predator um it's great film and just felt so 
smart and I just love the rethink of it. And I'm, I'm always happy to be yeah. outdoors. For... And the dog was great. Love the dog. Dog was fantastic. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Um, and she, that lead actress was phenomenal. She was so good. She was so good. Like, yeah, such a great yeah. performance. Um, I like, I like interview the vampire and, and I like Mayfair witches. They're both really good. I haven't seen Mayfair. I love interview the vampire. I think it's, you know, what's really interesting about interview the vampire. And I've, I've, been talking about this with with some of my sort of genre buff friends is it's the first series i've that i'm can really think of that has a gay relationship at its core and people aren't calling it a gay show and i think that's interesting mm. that 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 there's some yeah. kind of change in the way people are viewing film and television now that you can have a show like interview vampire where this the central relationship is between two gay men and people aren't going Oh, that that gay show or that gay horror series? They're just it's just, it's the show is popular with just general horror audiences, and I I kind of I like the look of that. I think that's a good thing. And then there's I mean the Last of Us the oh, big episode so good. I mean I don't love the Last of Us, but that episode was great. And again, I don't I mean I feel like mm, I mean it's obviously it's been getting attention because it's it is a gay relationship, but it feels to me like it's. It's more about how that relationship was painted than it is that it was gay. Yeah. Yeah. And I think it was also interesting, mm -hmm. too, that, you know, it wasn't two perfect Abercrombie-looking 20-year-old guys. It was, you know, two sort of middle-aged, normal men, not not supermodel guys, you know, with their rippling yeah. abs and stuff. And, like, it was just – there was a an honesty. And a, I, I think that's part of why it, it's – for for the I mean you know that show is a huge audience and um, I haven't seen what I expect I expected some of that sort of blowback of people going, oh come on we're getting and it's, it's getting it all woke on us and I've seen very little of that shit from from that episode which is kind of nice yeah that almost feels like am I crazy but I feel like that has died down a touch if you look at the numbers I mean as much as I love Interview of the Vampire its ratings compared to Mayfair Witches are I mean, Mayfair Witches is blowing it out of the water, and I, I wouldn't, and I wouldn't be surprised if some of that has to do with the fact that it's so. It isn't one of the gayest shows on TV. Interview, you're talking about great. Are you talking about an interview being one of the gay shows on TV? Yeah, yeah. I mean, it's. I mean, I'm not saying it's a gay show, but it has it has more LGBTQ content than anything. Hundred percent. I mean, I think vampires in general have always hmm. been one of the better monsters to represent homosexuality in, in the horror genre than than yeah. you know, almost any other creature or vampire or you know werewolves or any of that stuff um but yeah interviews i mean i'm, I'm i was just glad that they they're giving it another season i was really worried you know it's so hard to know now like particularly netflix who i just like i find whatever their algorithm is for deciding what shows they're gonna keep i don't get it because <laughs> they'll have shows that i don't know like everybody talks about and loves and then it's like it's canceled and netflix is not super user friendly about why they make these decisions and it's got to the point where i know you know i hear certain people say well this looks interesting but i'm not gonna start until i know it's gotten two or three seasons because i just don't want them yeah. to deal with the disappointment of not getting to see it you know if it, it, a full arc uh, with the story yeah you hear you yeah. hear that so much now right? yeah it's i mean that must be so let's Let's dive into slasher here. So, uh, how, first of all, how did you guys both get started in television? Tell me a bit about how you 
got into TV in the first place? Uh, I went to the Canadian Film Center and when I was, I went for the film program, not the TV side. And then when I was there, um, they were looking for young writers to develop Degrassi, the next generation. And so I got hired with, uh, with my good friend, Tassie Cameron, who's, who's another showrunner in town to develop it. And she went off to do a cop show and I stayed on and then the showrunner left. So I was running the show without having had experience in TV. Um, that's, that's how I got started. And then, um, Ian also went through the film center. I did. And, and I just need to know, I, I feel like I've asked you this, but it's so, it's so wild that you were running the show. How soon after you graduated the CFC, were you running Degrassi? Uh, the next year. Holy wow. shit. Really? Uh, yeah. It was, so it, how old were you? It's, it's so oh, yes. I was, I was in my late twenties. Wow. Yeah. Jeez. And he's run a show, I think every year wow. since. Um, I, uh, yeah, I, I also went to the CFC. I, I had been doing, I'd been writing and directing theater for about 15 years and I got really tired of, uh, being broke. <laughs> and yeah. even though I was like, to whatever extent yeah. I was successful and, um, and I was looking at people from theater, actually one of which was, is a friend of ours who works on, uh, Mayfair, which is, uh, Sean Raycraft. And I remember looking at their clothes and going, they were ex-theater people and going, these guys aren't broke anymore. <laughs> like what's, and then I realized, oh, yeah, they're working yeah. in TV. <laughs> and, uh, and it's not like I wanted to be rich. I don't want to be broke. Like, yeah. <laughs> I don't, I don't want to be wondering yeah. how I'm going to pay my rent every month. And so, yeah, so I went to the CFC and I got one, I got one freelance gig, um, but I waited a year before I was staffed and that was actually, there was some, some award, some emerging writer award that you got a, uh, internship on a show and that put me on Aaron's show. Well, it didn't put me, the network invited me to meet with Aaron and I met Aaron and he said, I think I asked what the interview was and he's like, just to make sure you were not, I think you were sort of like, make sure you're not stuck up about TV. Um, <laughs> And, uh, and so then I got an internship on Aaron's show, The Best Years, and then I was lucky that that turned into a paid gig uh, as a junior on that show. And I, yeah, and went from there. Of the shows that you guys worked on between that time and Slasher, is there one you think that was sort of the most helpful or, or useful in terms of the, building the, these sort of tools that you would then end using when you when you created Slasher? Like Aaron, you worked on Killjoys, isn't that yeah. right? I only did I only did um like a couple months on Killjoys and wrote a script, so I didn't have a big. Okay. It was it was it was kind of like a pre-production job, so I don't I don't as much as I enjoyed it and as much as I love Michelle Lovretta, I didn't it wasn't I wasn't really on that show. Uh, okay, I mean if you look at slasher, it's it's a genre soap opera, so uh, right all the all the shows I've worked on have kind of been that. So even Degrassi, it wasn't a genre. Well, it's teen genre. It's, it's, it's a soap opera. Um, Best Years was a soap opera. Being Erica um, was not a soap opera, but it had a really strong genre component, sort of component which was time travel. Right. But, yeah. And so when I got to creating Slasher, I just was, uh, I, I knew that I wanted to do, um, like an Agatha Christie novel and a slasher movie mixed together. And I knew that to, to be able to do 
a slasher series, you can't just have kill, kill, kill like you can in a movie because that, I mean, it gets, it's too expensive and it gets boring if you did that for eight hours. So yeah, that, right. I kind of melded um, slasher with the soap that I've always been doing. So, to, so it became like a character show with, with every episode I have one or two kills. Yeah, I think, you know, my, my answers are a little similar too. I mean, I, I actually think that first, that first show, the best years, like working on a soap, and realizing I loved it, I didn't. I didn't know that about myself yet, and just uh, sort of hard on your sleeve characters, and kind of being the junior. And I don't know how well you remember this, Aaron, but the a regular thing, which of course pushed my ego at the very start, would be like you do a draft, and then Aaron would say, "Okay, we'll give this draft to so and so because they write the sexy stuff so well," or something like that. And I'd be like, "Hey, but I can write sexy stuff well." But you give it to that person, the draft would come back, and you go, oh, yeah, that's really good. Okay, now give it to so-and-so because there's that nasty dialogue between those two characters, and they do that so well. And again, I'd be like, I can do that, and but I'd give it. Uh, and then it would come back, and I'd go, oh, yeah, it's like so good. Those scripts felt very group um, group created. Like there was a lot of voices within them. Not that that's not present in most shows, but it was really present in that show. And I think that taught me a lot, and I and I saw a lot of value in everyone else's voices in there. Um, and then I think once I worked on a cop show and had cop shows in development, and I started to do some thriller MOWs, being in the trenches of that just teaches you so much about mystery. I think it actually teaches you so much about story. Um, I mean, I even noticed that from friends who would give me notes. You're like, the people that had a, a big procedural background were just so good with plot. And I think I was probably weak at that at the beginning. I really picked that stuff up on those kind of gigs. And it's all, as Aaron says, it's all at play. In yeah, I mean, it's interesting because right? I think of sort of, you know, I think for almost any filmmaker or writer or whether working in TV or movies or whatever it is, there's usually some formative project or transitional point you know i mean i mean for me like i started out when i was a teenager working for william f white doing and i was doing playback so i was going on big sets and i thought oh this would be great i'll learn how everything works and you know and i'll get to sort of see the directors do their thing but the problem was is like i was working on you know the first movie i worked on was finding forrester with gus van zandt and it was so far from anything what? i'd be able to recreate to make my own short film or something that there wasn't that much I could learn. I got to sort of see the ropes of how a big set works. And and that was kind of neat. But the first movie where I really said, oh, okay, kind of this is this is how it was a little independent movie that my friend Lindsay Lanzalotta, who was at the time based in, as a Toronto-based producer, she's now in LA, but she produced this movie called Hooked on Speedman. And it starred Christopher Jacko. Oh. Um, so that was, I worked on, on that movie uh, doing... Lindsay asked me to come on and do kind of a making of thing for when they released it on DVD. And it was just kind of as a favor, I did that. And, but I learned more on that set because they had no money and it was, so I was like, so that's what you do. This is how you solve these problems when you don't have all those resources mm -hmm. that Gus Van Zandt has, which was far more useful when I went off then to go make my own things. Cause I actually understood, Oh, okay. We may not have a lot of money for like a fancy remote head, but make sure there's enough money for craft or you're fucked. <laughs> like you learn things like that, you know, on, on, on those sorts of sets. Um, you know, and, and, and so I think it's interesting when you look kind of at the starting point to sort of see 
sometimes, you know, you're talking about Aaron, like Degrassi, like people wouldn't necessarily see how that could transition to giving you tools to work on a show like Slasher. But th- I, it probably was very formative for you for things that you're still using to this day as a, as a showrunner and as a writer. Yeah, I mean, it, it, what it taught me for sure was um, the importance of theme in every episode and how you juggle a cast of, we had 30 characters or so, how you, and you know, wow. Slasher has, I mean, we usually end up like between 14, 15, 16 characters and they all, because they're all suspects, they all have to have, they have to be fully fleshed out. They can't just be cardboard cutouts. So yeah, we, we, we spend a lot of time, Ian and I, thinking through, oh, this person could be the killer because of so-and-so, or this is why they deserve to die. And there's a lot of character work that goes into into that, which is no different than character work going into um, any show, really. Yeah, right. And what was sort of the genesis of, of Slasher? Like, what was, where, what was sort of the point where you went, I want to make a, a, an anthology-style, you know, television show with slasher themes like how did you sort of come on that and how did you pitch it how did, how did it get started uh so i i just finished a show called saving hope which was a medical show i was running i ran its first season and um i had it was like i had done a bunch i think that was the fourth very female-centric soapy soft kind of show that i'd done and, and, and nothing against those shows because i love doing them but i by that point i was like oh i can't i can't do another one but people only think of me as that understandably because that's all i've done and that show i also learned about um surgery because it was a it was a surgeon show and i wrote an episode where people some guy i think it was a guy had his hands cut off and they had to sew them back together and so I thought, well, what if the show was about somebody whose hands, what if it's, instead of sewing them on, it's about cutting them off. And then, and so I thought, well, why don't I write a slasher, but I really like Agatha Christie. So what if I try to do like a murder mystery? And then, um, and then I wrote it just on spec, which means I just wrote it just to write it, just to show it to people I could do something. Different. Yeah, no, you weren't hired to create it, right? Yeah, no, I wasn't hired to create it. And, and then when I wrote it, I gave it to my agent in LA and just as I sent it to him, Sandy Hook happened and in the States. And so the States basically moved far away from doing anything violent, understandably. And so it didn't have any hope down there. And then Shaftesbury up here read it and then they optioned it and then they sent it around and sent it to um, a woman at uh, Super Channel at the time named Melissa Capist, who I went to the film center with and she really liked it. And she said, well, let's do eight episodes. So it really was like, wow. It was. It came out of the blue in in many ways, and um, and I wrote the whole first season because I had. I just was like, I'm just gonna write it like a giant movie, and mm-hmm. and we had to have all eight episodes to shoot as we do every season because we shoot it block. We block shoot all eight episodes. Um, yeah, and that's how it just it just that came on, and then we pitched it to Chiller in the states to a, um, a guy named Tom Vitali who's still attached to the project, and they came on as our American, and then we just we shot. Yeah, the first season up in Sudbury and Perry Sound. It was very fast. It happened like like that really, really quickly. Right. Because, I, you know, I'd have to what? think at the time, what was it, 2016? Yeah. So, I, I mean, the only other thing I can really think of that would have been going at that time that would have been similar would be something like American Horror Story. Yeah, it was. Yeah, def- definitely. And we, yeah, and we... Uh, and I loved... I love American Horror Story, or it did back then. And, the, and I love the idea of a closed story so that you have, you don't have to 
you don't have to keep the like how would you keep if it was this if we'd stayed in waterbury the whole series it would be like okay if, if there's this many serial killers maybe don't stay there <laughs> yeah <laughs> yeah yeah right yeah and it's different too it's not like a show like hannibal where you have all this you know backstory to fall back on because you had a writer who's put out you know five books about it so you can yeah. work from it you know it's a different it's a different situation for sure yeah um ian how and so how did you sort of get in, get involved in slashers uh it i mean i think i'm very lucky that aaron got way too busy and uh so when his show another life uh happened i was working with shasbury as well and actually i'd been taken off of a project for being too dark. I'd, ri I'd written a script that uh, they were at some point, the showrunner who was a great guy was like, I'm really sorry to say it, but I don't think we're going to do this episode. And uh, so maybe that also helped too, that Shasbury was warm to the idea. And, uh, and uh, yeah, so I, I, I interviewed and I, and I got, but you guys gig. already were friends um, at that point, right? You knew each other. Yeah. Oh yeah. 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 I mean, I've, I've, I've told the story, I've told the story that Aaron and I used to meet for sort of working mm -hmm. lunches, right? Like we'd like, let's go to this cafe. We'll talk during lunch. We'll try and be quiet, not be idiots while we're both working and writing on things. And he would, I had worked with him on the best years and, and being Erica hadn't worked with him since. And we'd be, you know, we'd be sitting there and be like, what are you doing? Okay. And what are you doing? And I'd ask Aaron and he's like, oh, I'm working on this adaption of this comic book. I'm like, are you oh my God, I'm obsessed with that guy and that comic book and I have signed copies and I didn't know you were a fan. He's like, well, no, I, it's new to me. This company brought it to me and I'm doing it to it. I'm like, oh my God, I'm so excited. Wow, Aaron, you know, how lucky. Then the next time I would see him, it'd be like four or five months later and I'd be like, oh, so what are you doing? And he'd be like, oh, I'm just about to start the room for that project. I'd be like the room, i.e., oh. I'm not in the room, <laughs> and I'm and I've said I'm the massive fan, and this happened a couple times in a row, and I'd made peace at some point. I was like, "Okay, Ian, Aaron doesn't have to love your writing. That's okay. You guys are friends. It's it's you know it's not going to happen. Just make 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 peace with that." And I had, and I accepted that as fact, and then I was surprised when. I got this interview and got the. He was just waiting for something so. weird enough for for you to be appropriate for it. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> I guess. I guess. Like yeah. Putting together yeah. a room is such a weird. Yeah, I know. Nothing about I know. you. I know. I know. Let's I work know. this I out know. here, guys. You, I want you, us to you, work. You, let's talk. Yeah. Let's but explore Ian, our. <laughs> Ian had also Ian. Had, Ian was at the. We had a screening of the very first episode at whatever that what's that theater up on the Danforth. The Bloor. Oh, we had a screen yeah. there. You came with Adam McDonald. You very you'd, yep. you'd unlike so many other people, you had kept track of the show and had watched it and and when and I knew I knew you you oh, were yeah. into the show and you know and I always wanted to work with you again. And then when the I can't even think of anybody else. I mean, maybe I considered Sean Raycraft for the, for the show probably because he does everything. But no, well, but don't say that. But you were like <laughs> you were like the number one, so it was you know. Ah, uh, well, that's nice. Yeah, that was the weird thing. If uh, Sean is listening, was, sorry you know, that you were number two. Now. Oh, yeah, yeah. <laughs> he's well, he's worked with him uh, so many times. Um, uh, and we put references to him in the show <laughs> very often. <laughs> in, it's where he we get these emails from him, <laughs> dicks, you know, whatever the thing was that we did. 
but um, but yeah, sitting there with Adam McDonald, we both watched the pilot of the first season, and we we're both we we're both nerding out, and it was sort of my return to horror. I'd been away from it for so long, and I was starting to say to everyone, "I'm like, I want to do horror. I want to do horror." My agents, any company I met, you know, they're always like. But what do you really want to do? And I was like, horror. I'm devoting the next three years to horror. I'm just going to make those kind of projects, all that kind of stuff. So it was very weird that that started. And Adam and I both saw the pilot. And we're like, oh man, this is so good. We love this. Wouldn't you like to work on this? Yeah, man, for sure. I'd like to work on this. And then, then the weird thing of getting the gig, and then them and my saying, okay, so and and it was it wasn't hurried, but it was there were some speeds to it all. And I was like, oh, so what's happening with directors? And they're like, oh, well, we're talking to Adam McDonald. And I was like, oh, this is crazy because he's my very good friend, um, which was also just so, so – was What was the name of his movie? That's such backcountry. Backcountry? Oh, man. So the bear oh. one. Okay. Yes. Lindsay, who's my one of my producing partners, produced that movie with him. And I remember going oh, no to – What's Lanzalotta? Um, okay. And she works with Mike Souther, who mm. you, you guys know, who uh, works with Taza. And, you know, anyway, it's it's so the Canadian mm. film and television scene is very small, I find. But yeah, I mean, even the, the L.A. one is, too, in a way. But um, but I remember going to see Backcountry. I think it was at a, fe- a festival screening. And I thought it was one of the most effective, like, animal on the loose movies I'd seen in age because it actually mm. was. It had a realism to it those movies don't usually have. Um, and because it was based on a, a real bear attack that I was in Algonquin Park when that had happened. So I felt this connection oh to that story. And But I thought Backcountry was fantastic. It was That was such a great Canadian genre film. Underrated, too. Not enough people, yeah. I think, caught on to it. Yeah. Well, I love, I mean, when I last saw it, it was in IMDb's top 200 uh, horror films of all time, which That's good. I'm, I'm yeah. really happy for him about. And I really love with his, with his movies, that and Piwak, it like, there's so, and this clicks with Slasher in such a big way, you know, a Backcountry for the first 40 minutes or more is a relationship movie. Yeah. You know? It's all, there's, it, yeah, it's all building. There's kind build of up. no horror. Yeah. yeah. And then same same thing with Piwacket. It's the sort of mother daughter teenager sort of story, and you're waiting for that horror to to, yeah. to come. And I, I love that. And that that connects, I think, to to some of what goes on in slasher in a big way. And it's you know one of the reasons why he's he's great as the director of the last three seasons. Yeah, I mean, it's interesting. I think too to kind of think about it. You know, 2016. I'm kind of thinking of like, okay, what genre horror genre shows were on TV then? I don't. I'm not sure if Hannibal was around then or if it came a little later. I think it was like Walking Dead and and American Horror Story. Yeah, yeah. I mean, Walking Dead was (laughs) to me. uh, I don't. I don't want to shit talk anyone else's show, but I remember I said to George Romero once. I asked him when he thought of Walking Dead, and he went, "Zombie soap opera, not interested." Um, uh, and and his friends all were working on it. Greg Nicotero, you know, started under as Romero's makeup guy, but but Greg uh, George just didn't. It wasn't how he liked to use zombies, so it just didn't. And you know, mm. Walking Dead, I loved the first few seasons, but there were so many problems in those early seasons on that show. You know, with Frank Darabont getting canned, and then when amc i think it was pulled the budget and so i think season two they just end up sitting on like a farm for the whole season because they had no money it's like um so walking dead i you know 
I think it's great that how well they've done with it, but it, it wasn't a show I connected to for very long. American Horror, uh, I thought was great, but it started to derail for me. I think around like the well, pretty much when Jessica Lang left, and I think that's probably why it was wise of her to bail when she did. But because um, I find Ryan Murphy's work can be a little. I don't know. There's a lot of like wink, wink, nudge, nudge that goes on in his stuff. And I think that's what's different about slasher is that it isn't a comment on slasher genre stuff. It isn't a, a, a wink at the slash. It is a slasher show. It is. It, 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 it's, it lives in that genre in, and with respect to it. Yeah. And, and it is not kind of making fun of it. And I think that's when I saw the first season of slasher as a pretty kind of hardened horror fan, that's what excited me about it was like, oh, this is a show that actually gets the tropes of this genre and isn't trying to make fun of them, but is embracing them. Yeah. And a lot of that had to do with Craig David Wallace, who was our director in season one. Cause again, he's a way bigger horror fan than I am. I, uh, uh, and he just, you know, he knew, he knew how to bring the visual storytelling to bring that to, to the front. But I wonder if that's part of it too, right? Is because you weren't coming at it as like a horror fanatic going, well, I want to kind of make comments on this, and that you just, wanted to tell a straight ahead horror story with this Agatha Christie component without all that kind of, you know, I think like people talk about scream and, and, and that's a great film of course, but Wes had been so immersed in horror for so long that that was his way of purging. Like, you know, they won't let me fucking do anything else. Here's a way I can kind of do something different with this genre. Yeah. Yeah. We, I think one of our rules Ian is that we don't, we never are um, ironic in the show. And Self, self-referential or no. something. Yeah. You're right. We don't ever do torture no. porn. That's the other thing that we, even though we have horrible things happen, we're not, we're not doing it to, to just to have fun, like just to sit in it. It's, it's always there for a reason. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I think the, yeah, I think that's, that's big is that the, the lives that are being lost matter. And, you know, I sometimes sit there and I go, is there a show? I'm sure someone will have a fast answer for this, but is there a show with more crying on it than slasher say? And it's because, yeah, you, you, you know, also uh, by virtue of it being a TV show, you fall in love with these characters and or party of five. I thought of it. Party of five. <laughs> yeah. That's all they did on that show. <laughs> or you, uh, you end up hating the hell out of that character. And hopefully maybe the episode that they die, we might pull off, you know, changing or later in flashbacks, you might go, oh, you know what? Yeah, they are a total dirtbag, but I can see how they got there. And I feel terrible about that. So we're sort of trying to chase that sort of. I think that's got kind of the key, though, to when a horror film, the difference between, you know, a, a fun horror movie and a horror movie that actually can be affecting is whether or not you are caring about the characters. So like when I watch a Friday the 13th part six, I can have a blast because in that I'm rooting for Jason. I want to see all the cool ways he's going to kill yeah, people. Yeah. And because it's because they're all just archetypes, the jock, the, you know, the slut, the, the, you know, whatever it is that, that, that those movies kind of work with. Um, but on slasher, I'm not rooting for the killer. I'm, there's characters that I, and, and even if I don't like them, I still usually don't want them to die. I remember, um, Jefferson Brown is an old friend of mine. We've known each other for nearly 20 years. Oh, wow. I, and, and I adore Jeff. He, he's come to every screening of every one of my films. He's been such a great, just, you know, we won't see each other for a year. And then it's just like, we catch up. And it's like, no time has passed. And I love his enthusiasm for like little movies. And he's, I just adore Jeff. But I remember seeing him in, I guess it's season three, right? Where he gets killed in the sauna. That's season two. 
And I was like, yeah. damn, give him more to do, guys. <laughs> I was so disappointed. He was in it for so little. Um, because he his character was interesting right off the bat. And not just because I love Jeff, but just because that's what the show does to me that I think is so great is there's the amount of times I have sworn at your show for killing a character when I wasn't ready to say goodbye to them. And I think that speaks to the show having actual stakes with the characters. If if you actually invest in these people, then when something happens to them, you're not like, oh, cool. You're like, oh, no. And that's the difference between an emotional investment and not that. Um when I watch American Horror now, it's really more about like seeing like hot gay sex scenes and maybe some cool gore sequences than it's in. Well, the, I don't know if you saw the last season, which was intense and was about uh, the AIDS epidemic. And... Of, it was a ripoff of Cruising, like that, like down to <laughs> yeah, totally. like, it's a ripoff of which Cruising. Oh yeah, yeah, yeah. But for you guys as the writers and, and in the writer's room, is there sort of, does Slasher have sort of a Bible, certain things where you like, you cannot, you know, if a new writer comes on or something's like, you can't do this or we don't do this. Is there, are there certain rules that you kind of stick to? No. And you know, just the thing is when we, when we have outside writers, we've given them a pretty hefty description of what the episode should be because it's so serialized that they, there's no way that they can, you know, come up with their own single episode. Um, what I can't think of anything that's out of out of bounds, other than the stuff I said earlier, which is it's not torture porn and it can't be ironic or self-referential. Right. And if it has, if they can add George Michael, <laughs> anything about George Michael in the show, they get extra points. Yeah, there are there are uh, every year we keep doing it together. There there accrue these uh, inside <laughs> references and things like that. <laughs> Well, it's, it's, I mean, it's interesting because you look at the show and it's like um, there's sort of a, almost a repertory theater quality to the way Slasher seems mm-hmm. to be run. It's, you know, you bring back a lot of the same cast and they play different characters and a lot of the crew looks to me as to, to be a lot of the same crew that's been with you throughout it. And that's not always common in, in certainly in, in serialized network television. Um, you know, and I would think there has to be you know, for example, like for me, I've worked with the same DP on a bunch of different projects and you develop a shorthand and it saves you a lot of time on top of that. It's fun to work with people you mm-hmm. like. Is that kind of, is it the same thing for you guys? Is that part of why you bring back a lot of the same people just to, to have that shorthand and just because it's more fun to make, make movies and make television with friends? Um, actor wise, it's because we just, I mean, we, we've, a lot of these actors we've been working with and Ian has known um, personally for you know, decades and uh, like Paula Brancati, who's, who's our, uh, you know, our, our screen queen, she was on being Erica with me. Right. So I, and Aaron Carpluck who we brought from being like, so a lot of the people you'll see on the show, we've, we've worked with, or they're actors. We've always said, Oh, I'd love to work with that actor. And then we get to, right. Cause and we, and yeah. the thing about the show is because we're not, cause nobody's uh, optioned because each season's its own season. We can, um we can bring an actor in for like, three weeks and then just shoot them out. And then they don't, they can go off and do whatever else they're doing. And it doesn't, we, we can, we can get actors who we wouldn't necessarily be able to get otherwise. Right. But, and that's how we like we're Eric McCormick, who's going to be in season five and, and um, David Cronenberg in season four. Like that's how we are able to get, you know, you know, big name guys actors. like that. Yeah. 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 Right. Yeah. And it, it does create an amazing, you know, f- feeling there. Like there's a real, uh, there's a real summer camp, uh, vibe to it. And I think too, because 
half the time too, like a lot of what people are going through or performing is just so intense or, or tough to do physically and all that, that everyone's kind of going through it together. Kill days, which are called kill days are, you know, a big loaded affair. Sometimes too, that means that actor that you loved and were hanging out with, they're gone, you know, and everyone's like, so there's like a sadness that can creep into all that. And, um, yeah, there's something about I think because they're they're such demanding shoots physically, often not always, but often there's just something about uh, the tightness that that comes on these shoots that's uh, I don't know really special. And I think too, you see, you know, a, a genre show like this, it demands the, the 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 highest from all the departments. Like, there's not a department I can think yeah. of that I'm like, I'm not like, oh man, you know, when we're rigging this thing to do this terrible thing to this person, um, it's everyone is bringing, you know, a very impressive A game and kind of blowing each other away as they all do it. So, yeah, it's like, you know, it's it it makes for just an incredible family. I think. Well, I think it's, you know, we, we were talking about American Horror Story a bit, and, and that's something that they did with great success that I think that the fans enjoy. It's fun to see some of the actors that you really liked, you know, and, and especially in the anthology format where typically if they're dead, you know, there's a chance you may not see mm-hmm. them again. But but here it's fun to go, you know, like for me having, you know, watched the show since season one, watching Chris Jacko, you know, get to play all sorts of different things and really stretch his acting or Jeff or whoever it is, you know, these actors. That, and, and you know, I remember when Steve Byers was in season one, uh, you know, and, and I think Steve's great. And and, and I, I worked with him on a, on a film early in my career and he's a lovely guy. And it was fun to see him get to play something unlike anything I'd ever seen him do because he was doing a lot of like sort of kind of hallmarky stuff. And here he was where getting to do something, you know, very different. Mm-hmm. Um so it must be really fun for you guys in the writing room, you know, knowing the actors that you're going to use again to go, hey, what can we write for, you know, Chris this time that, that he hasn't gotten to do yet or that could really, that we think he could really nail? Is that part of, of, of how you approach it when you're writing? Do you write for some of these actors now? Um, I think I think we come up with characters first and then we sometimes think, oh, this character would be perfect for actor A or actor B. Right. Yeah. Like... When you're when when you're writing the scripts, like or, or I guess breaking this story, I suppose for a new season. So you've broken the story. At that point, do they do, is it then a thing of like knowing kind of okay, well we want to bring whoever it is back. They'd probably be perfect for this. Do you ever then augment that role a bit because you know who you want, or does it always kind of just you know the actor is brought into play at how he was written? Um, I think it's a combo of both, probably right, Ian. Like if we have a real clear idea, if we want. A certain actor back we'll um but then like you said like uh, when we bring actors back we always want to give them to a chance to play something that they're not we're not used to seeing them play so right our plug for example you know aaron and i worked together for four years on being erica and she played the quintessential girl next door and was bright and fluffy and happy so the two times she's been on <laughs> slasher she's been one time she was you know um uh, a woman with uh, clear mental problems and the second time she was this horribly repressed kind of mean teacher right and i just wanted to i just wanted to see aaron do something because she's such a great actress i want to be able to see her do things that she's she hasn't really been cast in before yeah right yeah 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 that feels that feels right i mean sometimes too it, it almost feels like we're 
I'm making up a number, but we're like three or four episodes in in the writing. And we really have like really circled around an actor that we're hoping. And that's the other thing too, right? It's like there's a real like, will they be available when we go? Who knows? Yeah. Can we share them right. with the show? Blah, 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 blah. But yeah, you do start buzzing out with uh, – and, and for me, that feels often more some of the sort of extreme characters. Like I will think of like last season, Flo in season four, which is um, played by Sabrina Gurdovich. Uh, we were, uh, there was a point during the summer when we were writing it, we we're like, oh my God, Sabrina would kill this. And just starting to picture her perform it, the character was created, it just, it just gave us sort of verbal power in some of her, some of her more enormous, crazy bouts of dialogue, you know, and you're just giggling, picturing yeah. her doing it. Did we know we could get her? Do we know it would work out? Nope. You know? And she hadn't been in the show since season one, and she had quite a small part in season one. So it's uh, it's not like it was like we knew from that performance that it would be, oh, that would be. We just knew, just knowing her as an actor, we were like, oh, this could be fun yeah. with her. Yeah, it's, I mean, it's funny because I think, you know, watching Jefferson, he's been in what? He was only in, not in season two? Uh, He's in season two. Yeah, I think he's in every season. He's in two, three, four. Is he in season one? Yeah. 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 He plays kind of like the hillbilly sort of character in that. Yeah. He's in everything. Yeah. Oh, okay. It's fun watching. Like when I first saw Jeff in season one and he was playing this kind of hillbilly character, which is so far from who Jefferson is. Right. Um, you know, and, and just seeing kind of each season, you know, when you, when you know an actor and you know, kind of like how much fun he's, I know how much fun he's having on the show you know, it's great to sort of see him getting to do all these different things, you know, and Jeff was on on the podcast and, and we talked a lot about his work on Slasher and he just, you know, he he, he gushes about how much fun it is to be also on a show where everybody's having mm. a good time. Yeah, because all it takes is like you work on one short movie where people aren't having a good time and you know how much longer and grueling it can feel like when people are there that don't want to be there. I mean, I think I think definitely in season with Jefferson, we we knew early on we wanted Jefferson for that part because it was remember how ridiculous it was we were yeah. learning him because he was trying to be like a Douglas Sirk character. Yeah, yeah. And he was saying the most. I mean, a lot of times we'll put stuff in just because we find it funny. Right. Yeah. Yeah. Well, I remember in Je when Jeff got killed in season season two is the is the one in the at the yeah. camp, right? Yeah. Yeah. When Jeff gets killed at the sauna, um, and I saw that scene. And I messaged Jeff and made a joke about I was glad to see that he hadn't let himself go after having kids and stuff. And and then I said, uh, uh, and then he went, yeah, 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 ha, 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 or something like that. And then I wrote back and I was like, ha, huh, there's a pun there. Let yourself go because, you know, because he like got broken in half. You got cut in half. You get it. He was like, fuck off, Kevin. And it was just it's <laughs> it's fun for me now as a routine. Every time I see the new season of the show to shoot Jeff a message about his horrible death, because you guys really like killing Jefferson. Because he's so nice, and, and yeah, we do. But <laughs> yeah. but we did not kill him in season three. Pe people forget that that character is still alive. That's true. He's kind of in season three. He was sort of a psycho yeah. nut job, right? Yeah. Why, the character's right. name was Wyatt. Yeah. I loved I loved that character and his performance in those scenes with uh, Lisa Berry, who played the the cop. Like, yeah. He was scary, and I know the fucking guy, so that was, you know, a testament to the writing and the performance that even Jeff, who is the least scary person in real life, I remember watching that scene and be like, ew, Jeff, yeah. like, what is this? Yeah. You're, you're so yeah. horrible here. Um, <laughs> um, it, you know, it, when you guys were first 
like going back a bit to the the, the early beginnings of the show, like was there ever a a, a discussion or a, a a thought that it wouldn't be an anthology? Like, did you ever consider a something more serialized, or did you know from the get go you wanted the anthology format? Um, yeah, I knew from the get go because I knew that uh, I was wrapping the story up at the end of season one, and that there was nowhere else for it to go. Right. I have to be because then yeah, because then season two when we were and this is before Ian's time because he came in on season three, but season two. Shaftesbury is like, so what would you want the season two to be about? And I was like, well, season one was kind of inspired by Halloween. What if season two is kind of inspired by Friday the 13th? That was so that's something I was going to ask you about. That's in my notes is I kind of noticed on the show that each season seems to have kind of different nods or homage or reference points to well-known horror movies or horror franchises. I mean, yeah, to a degree like the, the, yeah. the, the summer camp for season two. Season three, though, was season three, what are we, because after that, I feel like we've done, like season four was definitely Douglas Kirkman. Yeah, season three was uh, Spring Breakers was our sort of reference film. and I mean, season four to a lot of horror fans, um, and I, I'm, it doesn't sound like you guys intended this, but it seemed like sort of a, a, a hodgepodge of something like Most Dangerous Game and something like a bit of a saw feel with the games mm-hmm. and the, mm-hmm. you know, and, and, and unfairly I so, and I think people are coming around to this. The first couple, there's some very good saw movies. People saw gets labeled this torture porn thing. And it's kind of bullshit. Cause a few of the saw films are fantastic and they, and they are not just about watching people suffer, but in the, in the, in the best sense of the saw part, I think that, that the last season did have kind of that notion of, you know, there's a game being played. There's there's traps. There's you know all that kind of stuff, which which I think was reminiscent for a lot of horror fans of of the Saw franchise. Yeah, we're I mean for sure we're we're super conscious. You know when when we're doing it of of everything, and actually sometimes that you know that becomes a, a sort of a, a roadblock or bumper for us where we're like oh we gotta we gotta watch that we we love that uh, and. But it can't no, be too much no. that. Yeah. 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 So right. it's usually more those sort of reference films become, uh, you know, really impactful for sort of uh, directing, DOP palette, the music, things like that. Right. Yeah. Like I know season one, for example, I, I don't remember the episode, but there's a very Halloween-esque shot of a jack-o'-lantern that I remember. I was like, oh, this is yeah. full on Carpenter mm-hmm. here, you know, and, yeah. and Halloween is my favorite horror franchise. So that, that was great fun for I me. I think it's the opening of the of the show, I think. Is I it? Heard. Yeah. 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 But like the, 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 the overriding thing for us each season is, is more what our theme is than anything. Like uh, it's in each season has its very distinct theme. And um, like season one was about sin killing people for sin. Season two was about uh, being culpable for something that didn't try and what and how long you're going to stay guilty for it. Season three was, was inspired by what happens when nobody, when society breaks down and people don't help each other. Right. And season four was about how families can want to kill each other. <laughs> the five is kind of like rich versus poor. Yeah. The class thing. Yeah. So season, season five is a class thing. Got it. You know, and I think another thing about, about the show that for me personally, that, that is an, another way that I'm a fan of it is that in Canadian television, I think, and, and I don't know how Americans, I mean, my husband's American, so he's talked to me a bit about this, but there's a view of Canadian television as generally being like Murdoch mysteries and a certain kind of thing. And I think slasher kind of 
slashes all those notions of what Canadian television is and what kind of stuff. I mean, and there's other shows that have been doing that thing. So I think Orphan Black did a good job of kind of carving out something different for, but, you know, do you, do you think that Canadian genre television is starting to have its own identity or do you think it's still an obscure sort of thing? I mean, it depends. I mean, something like Winona, Winona Earp is, has a huge identity, right? Like it's, it's a very, it, it hit a very clear audience that loves it around the world. Orphan Black, the same thing. Uh, I don't know. It's uh it's a great, it's a great question. I mean, yeah. I bet someone's, someone's writing a PhD thesis about it. Like I, I would sit there and I go, and this is way too flattering to us that I would grew, uh, look at it with great suspicion, but is there something about Canadian identity that lets you, I feel like a critic said this to us at some point, it lets you sort of take in other points of view more or something like that. Would you, would someone sit there and go, Oh, you could connect the many personalities of Orphan Black to perhaps the empathy baked into something like Slasher to, I don't know what, you know, how you would do that. But I think that might be a little bit of deft, flattering intellectualism if you're not careful. So I, I think it's, it's because in, it's interesting, you look at, you know, even genre cinema in, in Canadian genre cinema and we've Canada's had its fair share of great genre filmmakers. You had one of them on your show. Um, you know, uh, and I think it isn't until the last, I don't know, maybe decade that, that people in, in the, in the genre crowd themselves have started to look at some of those. I mean, a lot of them that were made in the late seventies and eighties were kind of made these, these sort of tax shelter kind of horror films that got made, but some of them are great and they do have a unique identity and there is a different feel to them than what America was putting out at that time. And and so you're starting to see this now. There's this weird thing that's happening where I go to horror conventions and talk to fans and they're like, oh, I love late 70s, early 80s Canadian horror. I'm like, what is that? When is that? I don't even remember that being a thing, but but it is now. And and I think in television, you know, it's it's I think Slasher and Orphan Black and a couple other shows have started to change the optics of what Canadian television has to be or look like. Um, you know, I saw a, a message board. You guys would probably love this, but it was all the reasons why Slasher is better than American Horror Story. <laughs> oh. <laughs> and it was this big, long thread of all wow. the reasons, all these fans contributing to why it, they think it's a better show. And one comment that I saw that I thought was really interesting was someone said, I think that you can tell slashers made by Canadians because it has empathy, whereas American Horror Story has cynicism. Mm. And I was like, huh, it's not for me to say if that's correct, but that's an interesting thought. I think we're pretty, I think we're pretty empathetic. I don't know, I'm not sure about the comparison, but I think the show is pretty empathetic. Like even, even when we talk about the killers and why they're doing it, we're trying to understand yeah. why they're doing it. They're not just, that's why they're not just, um, I mean, I can't think of if any of the killers have been maybe season five, but if any of the killers have been motivated purely out of being evil or not, which is kind of boring anyway, isn't it? Right? I mean, as a character motivation, why are they doing it? Because they're just bad. I don't think you could do that. Possibly, you can't do that. I mean, I'm sure there's examples of it, but on TV, I mean, you just require you require more character yeah. depth. You know, uh, uh, I don't think our show believes in villains. So I think, you know, to what you're saying, Aaron, like the characters that make me cry in season three are, you know, when Jen, the killer, 
sorry to reveal that to anyone. Jen is killed. I'm like, I, it <laughs> breaks my heart when she's talking to Sadia. And uh, so there's there's that. And then I think, too, to go back to what we were talking about, and let's use Sabrina's character, Flo, last season. One of the most hated characters we've ever had on the show. And yet people will, I'll, I'll see on message boards, people talking about, you know, just how terrible her father was to her. And starting to sort of understand, like, yeah, I, I still hate her. She's the worst piece of garbage. But how can you be anything but with that kind of upbringing? Um, yeah. So, yeah. Right. So I will say, and of all the kills we've done, when she kills their child, it's to me, that's the worst kill we've ever done in, in all, the whole series. Even though it's not graphic, it's still it just it's like, oh, gross. Did you hesitate at all to, to go that direction? No, <laughs> no. I mean, there's, you know, like I, it's interesting because, uh, the don't bury your gaze trope and stuff like that, that doesn't apply to a slasher show. Just like it doesn't apply to a show. It's like people, I'd rather, if, if we were just protecting all of our LGBTQ characters and that's not equality. Yeah. Yeah. Some kind of, some kind of preciousness about that or yeah. And I think, I think there's, I, I had a filmmaker on the show recently who directed a movie called Skin mm. and he's, uh, He's a gay filmmaker, and we were we were talking about what's great about you know that he was saying as a gay filmmaker is he said that he he can make a film now that that doesn't have gay themes in it, have people embrace that it was made by a gay filmmaker and talk about that, but not impose on it that well, but this isn't a coming out story or a coming of age story or any of that. It's it's just a movie that thematically has some similarities to do with a gay perspective, I guess. But it's, uh, you know, there's this kind of wave now of, of queer filmmakers and, and, and queer writers and artists that are creating stuff that is moving away from every story being sort of the tortured coming out story. And, 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 and I'm not saying that that shouldn't exist. That there, I think that there is a place for that. But I kind of want, I, I love the idea of being able to watch a horror movie where you have a, a gay character and nobody makes a big deal about the fact that he's a gay character. It isn't constantly taught. There was a movie, I won't say what it is. And you guys may know the one I'm talking about. There was a movie that came out this past year with Kevin Bacon about a, a gay conversion camp. Did you see I it? Haven't. I didn't see it. At one point in the movie, they stop and have a musical number to like a Katy Perry song. And I was like, fuck off. Come on. Like, that's bad. Yeah, It was just, yeah, it was just like, is that like, that's, that's like, that to me is like my uncle who's not gay's idea of like, you know what the gays probably would want to see. You know, like that's what that felt like to me is like, uh, sorry to my uncle. Yeah, on the me. other side of things, uh, the, some of the biggest flack we ever got in the show was season two where Rob, where um, Chris Jaco and Joe Vanicola were a couple, even though he was gay and she was, and she being her character was a lesbian. And there was so much anger directed saying, why are you trying to make them heteronormative and blah, blah, blah. And I'm like, cause they like each, they love each other. Like fuck off. Like it's, <laughs> don't need to, They're... this, this like weird, like protection of, of queer character. I was like, that just, that just keeps everything unequal. And we have a lot of good queer characters. We also have a lot of evil queer characters. Yeah. I mean, it's, it's one of the things I was going to ask you guys about is, you know, that I think Slasher has done a wonderful job in terms of representation and, and particularly for the LGBTQ characters. And, you know, was that something for you, Aaron, that was important to bring to the show from the beginning? Was that component? 
Uh, it's, it's, I brought it to every show I've worked on. So, yeah. Right. Yeah. No, but I mean, in terms of in the show, you know, Chris Jacko in season one has a, a you know, a, he's in a gay relationship. I don't think there's been a single season that didn't have some level of representation for the gay community in it. Um, was that something that, that they needed to be talked about in or did you just go and do it? I just do it. No one, at this day and age, no one really, unless you're working for, I don't know, the Mormons or something, no one's really gonna, <laughs> some, some people up here are. Uh, <laughs> I'm gonna mention that. Or if you're working for, you know, Hallmark. Even, you know, even Hallmark is moving towards being more inclusive. Very slowly. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, no one's ever um, questioned it. And we have, we show scenes of, 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 um, of people having sex that are, that are gay or lesbian. No one's ever had a problem with it. Right. Yeah. Like, I, I it's, it's funny because I, I worked on a film that had a, a main, one of the central characters was a gay character. And a guy at a festival screening put up his hand and said to us, Don't you think you're limiting your audience what? by putting, by rubbing this in everybody's face? And I was like, it, uh, I guess if that alienates someone, that this isn't for them. So that's that, you know what I mean? Yeah. And I think you kind of have to take that approach because no matter what you're making and whether it's, you know, and not even strictly around the subject, I think of having gay characters or gay sexuality in film, you, you, you also see the kind of the fan service thing that's going on in, in that some showrunners and creators are doing now where they're, where they're going, oh, well, we better just do this because the fans are all demanding it. I hate that style of communication with an audience. Don't let the audience tell you what your story is. That's crazy. Like, you know, I mean, it's you guys must get in terms of, you know, communication with your with your audience. Like, do you find that does it ever influence decisions you make or do you ever look at it and go, well, that really pissed them off when we did that last season. So maybe we should watch that moving forward. Like what's sort of the what do you learn from the audience? I would say no. Like you, you, uh, you know, you care what your fans, uh, think you, you enjoy their engagement. I think, uh, sometimes fans can, you know, I, I like, like, I don't know that you want to give people what they think they want. You kind of want to, I mean, it's, it's also, you're not, you're not thinking of the fans while you create something. You're all, you're a fan, right? Like you're, we're trying to tell ourselves as well, like a, an, a great, awesome, incredible, scary, funny, you know, empath, empathetic, everything we've been talking about story. So, so that's what's in your, your, uh, your head first and, and foremost as you're sort of putting all of that together. I think you sit there and you go, uh, you know, on this show you go, well, the fans are nuts for Paula Brancati, you know, and it's like, and the certain types of characters they, you know, see her do, what do you do for, for that? Like you're, you're aware of this sort of history, the multiple season history of the show and, and trying to deliver on that. And I think too, with some, some of the casting we're talking about, well, you, you want to twist that um, and surprise them and go, oh my God, I can't believe it's Jefferson doing this kind of thing now or something like that. But but no, right, yeah. you're not. You you we're not um, we're not thinking about it that way. Would you say that's right, Aaron? Yeah, I, the only thing you and I monitor mostly is if they're picking up early on who the killer is yeah. or not. Right, which gets tricky too, right? Like I've seen. I remember it's very interesting to me when we would come out in one big dunk uh, on Netflix, and you could see all the episodes. 
I would see so many people saying, I knew it, I knew it, I knew who it was. But when it started coming out week to week last season, I didn't see that. Um, and and there's things there right. too. I mean, you sit there, if we get down to four or five characters in the last couple of episodes and there's a bunch of people, well, it's, it's obvious it's this person or that was so disappointed. I'm like, well, I don't know. When you get to the last couple episodes, 20% of the audience is going to be right, you know, especially too, if you're doing, you know, or I'm making up a number, but it needs to well, make and sense. I, and I would think you, you want them, to, you want some of them to be right. Cause otherwise yeah. I think if they can't figure it out, then you've kind of faked your formula and you're kind of bullshitting your audience in that scenario anyway. You know, I mean, I think that the tricky thing when you're doing kind of that who done an egg at the Christie model, and I'm sure you guys spend a lot of time at this when you're cracking the story is like, okay, you know, you've got to, we've got to lay in clues and motivation and we've got to have red herrings, and, but we've got to make sure, you know, we can't do something at the end where it's like, surprise, there was this character you never knew about. And that's the killer because how unfulfilling would that be to the audience? And I think, look, you also go, the fans, the fans of the show are, and what they want and what they, you know, demand or desire, all that. It's based on what Aaron created. And so it's like, you know, they've built it for right. three years, four or five years of sitting down and going like, okay, slasher means this to me. And there's the list there. I know what it means for me. And we need to deliver the show. Um, and I, that to me is what's important. And, and lean it a little too each each year where they're like oh yeah oh this is different like we haven't done that before that's the great pleasure of this anthology is that you can every season you can just start to sort of move in a certain direction that hopefully surprises and excites them but they see all those benchmarks of like yeah i expect these kind of characters going through this kind of thing and these kind of values baked in going back to your yeah, your your right. comment about are people complaining about it if they're watching by season five and they're complaining and you're like, well, what are you doing? Like, it's. <laughs> it is, but you know, on some level it is unique. In, and then on a show like this, you can tune into season five without having seen one through mm-hmm, four and mm-hmm. still know what's going on. Right. I mean, it's because it's not, it's not, it's not a serialized thing. Um, I don't think probably many people do that, but I had a friend though, who I, I've been, I kept telling about the show. She was saying, I need a new show to watch. And I said, well, check out slasher and she's she watched um season mm. four first and then she loved it and went back and worked her way through and uh but she said to me well you know i uh, she's a huge cronenberg fan so that's part of how it started and i and she said but i got like well it makes sense to me i was like it's an anthology show you don't have to have seen one through three um but then you know when she saw it and she enjoyed it she went back and, and i think that's part of what makes anthology more accessible than other television because i'll have friends who say to me you know, you should check out whatever show. And I'm like, I'll go and look and I'm like, oh my God, mm. there's eight seasons. I don't like, I don't have, how am I going to yeah. have time? And if it's anthology for, I'm like, well, I don't have to make that commitment right away. I can commit to one season and then, you know, come back three months later and watch season two. And, and, you know, I think that's kind of one of the advantages of the format, but, you know, creating an anthology show is, it can be risky because at the same time, the anthology format, what some people don't like about it is that exact quality where they're like, no, I wanted more of the adventures of this character or these characters and I don't get them. Um, How have you guys sort of conquered the anthology format on this show to make sure that people are getting enough of kind of what they expect from Slasher, but also not sort of feeling like anything's a retread of something you did in season one or whatever by now going into season five? Well, I think I think when bringing back cast helps with that for sure. 
because they get to see their their cast they like to play something different um what else have we done i i, I mean i think we make the, the seasons so distinct that they're not it's not like you're seeing the same season like next season right five is a period piece so it's not like any of the previous seasons oh is it really yeah yeah what what time frame is it set in 1906 yeah 1906 oh okay I didn't know that. And that and that changes. I mean, and that, that's part of. And I'm conscious, guys, that my phone is going to die soon. Um, uh, uh, th- that's part of like I think keeping us e- excited too, right? Is like once once that lands, and you know, we in the network all agree and and love it. It's. I mean, I would say this season for sure shifted up our storytelling, right? Like it's it's yeah, it's different in ways I don't want to spell out before people see, but it's really informs how we put the whole thing together, and that's so much fun for us. Is the show set? This is something that I've seen people back and forthing about online, and I was curious to ask. You, I figured you guys would be the expert. Is every season set in the same universe? Yes. Okay. Yeah, there's like you can see. Um, little threads like um the camp that cam went to and and we look at the camp that he went to in season one when she's finding his book it's the same camp that we use in, in the past in season two like there's there's different there's little tiny threads that like connect people mm-hmm. okay season four had joe's character from season three um drop off what's her name i can't remember any uh afro uh yeah so it was um amber from season three dropped off Af- afra which when you look at it, you go, oh, this has to be before Solstice happened. Gotcha. And then I've yeah. noticed fans talking about in the press release for season five, the um, the detective has the last name of Rikers and the two killers in season three, their last name was Rikers. And so people are, people okay. are wondering, uh, I'm not saying what that is, but there's, there's, there's more of that in existence for sure. Now and, and George Michael, yeah, <laughs> and more, yeah. Keep the George Michael coming. Um, having Cronenberg in season four must have been like a big highlight for you guys. I mean, he's such you know he's so iconic just as a Canadian filmmaker, but just as a filmmaker in general. I was just curious, sort of how he how you got him, how how he got involved in the project. Did you write it for him? Yeah, Ian, you you. It was all because of Ian and Adam McDonald. Yeah, we. Uh... We, I, we didn't write it for him in that moment, um, but we were all putting together, us and Shudder, names of people that we thought would be perfect for this. And Cronenberg was at the top of all of our lists in all seriousness. Everyone was just like, oh my God. Like, and it just felt, and actually I think, I think possibly on paper, the character was, you could picture a more stereotypical performance. And when we mentioned Cronenberg, everyone was very excited about some of the sort of subtlety and gradation that we knew he would bring to it. Uh, I wrote him a, a, an email that someone got to him, a casting director got to him, and I talked about uh, how important he was to me, how important Videodrome was for me, the, the you know uh, one of the most watched films of my life. As a guy that went to U of T, hearing about you know the guy that was in the same film club as me at Hard House to then turn into making these movies and all that, it was all... He was just super uh, important to me, and I loved his performances. And then, yeah, uh, Adam McDonald and I jumped on a Zoom with him, and uh, he was—he was. I'm thrilled to say he was in love with the scripts, and um, you know, and he was went itching, from there. He was itching to get back in front on on a set too, because this was during the height of COVID, 
<laughs> but it was it was a it was a buzz for all of us. He was, and I think for everyone too. Like you know, when you're doing your show, whatever wherever you're, whatever you think of your own show, having David Cronenberg show up and say, I, I think this yeah. is good enough to be here. Um, and then make his own short with your, with your dummies. Yes. Yeah. 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 And he, he hired <laughs> our, he hired our, our, he hired, uh, yeah. Alexander Anger and Monica Pavez, who are our prosthetics, incredible prosthetics team, uh, black spot they're called. Wow. Yeah. I mean, he was so great on it too. It was, did they get nominated for an Oscar? Yes, they did. Wow. Huh. Now, so, you, you know, you had Cronenberg in four. You got Aaron McCormick, season five. Who are a couple other dream cast members you guys would like to have on the show? Just pie in the sky. Anyone. That's George Michael's not, not going to be an option, I don't think. I don't know. I haven't really thought of that. Ryan Reynolds, he'd be fun. Yeah. I don't know. I don't know. It's like, I, like, I feel like it starts with character often, and then, we're, then yeah. we start buzzing out about someone in a role. Yeah. Yeah. I remember I was, I was, when I was watching the Cronenberg performance, I was thinking of like, if, if, if it wasn't Cronenberg, like who else could play this? And I was thinking of, um, Lance Henriksen. Do you know oh that yeah. Actor? Yeah. That would be great fun. I was like, he would have been, he would have been great at. So, so Lance makes anything he's in better. If you get a chance, put Lance on. Um, okay. We're going to play a quick game before we sign off here. This is something we do in every episode. It's a little game, just a little bit of fun here. This game is called slashed or slasher. Okay, here are the rules of the game. I'm going to tell you guys a plot line, and you tell me if you think it would fit the slasher universe. If it if it if it does, slasher. If it doesn't, slashed. You ready? Yeah. Uh -huh. All right, here we go. A vengeful drag queen begins taking out her competitors who wronged her when they sabotaged her performance on a drag race style reality show. I'd say slashed. It could it could so easily be a slasher, but yeah, I think this is. Let's slash it for other reasons. <laughs> a group of social media influencers set out to catch a killer, but wind up in the killer's sightlines with their own murders being streamed on their channels. I'd say slasher. Yeah, agree. I have a pitch very similar. <laughs> a group of socialites find themselves targeted by a killer who happens to be a waiter they ridiculed and gave a shitty tip to at a high-end restaurant. I'd say slash just because it's not enough of a reason for him to kill them. Agreed. <laughs> Too thin. Um, yeah, I, I I thought of that one because I've been seeing all these stories that you have all these celebrities who are getting canceled for being mean to waiters. Yeah. <laughs> it's just like someone's got to make a horror movie about this. Um, okay, an ensemble of theater types, and you guys know what theater types are. I don't have to Flasher. explain that. Yep. <laughs> yep, you got all the motivations you need right there. An ensemble of theater types are being picked off one by one by a fed-up director. I'd say slasher, but I'd change the killer. Yeah, yeah, agree. And I'm reading uh, right now. I'm reading uh, "If We Were Villains," and it's it connects to this very much. Great book. <laughs> All right, and similar to the last one, an indep an independent filmmaker is offing his cast members on screen and trying to make it look like accidents when he runs out of money for effects. It could be a slasher. That's fun. Yeah, I don't think I don't I don't I think it should be slash though as well. I did too. I think it's because of the motivation. It's not weird enough, the motivation. It's not? No, I've heard, I've heard that pitch many times, too. It's like... Okay, so uh, you guys made a remake of Terror Train, and you did a second one. Uh, are you guys fans of the Jamie Lee Curtis original film? How did that How did that project come about? Oh, it was, yeah, I mean, it was... How can you not be fans of a movie with David Copperfield, or whatever his name is? <laughs> <laughs> Moses out of the ether. 
<laughs> yeah, no, we, and we, uh, the more we worked on that, the more we came to love it. Yeah. Yeah. And it's, it's, um, it's funny cause horror fans can be very hesitant with, with remakes, but I'm seeing a lot of, uh, love for, for, for both of them. So that's so, great. Yeah. Which is awesome. Um, and much like slasher, I think terror train is, you know, the story of a young man wronged by a group of young people and then he exacts bloody revenge. What do you think it is about kind of that trope though in sort of slasherdom that you kind of have to have a killer that's that in some way the killer has to be wronged in some way, right? That, that you kind of need that setup. Why do you think that trope is important to to slasher? Uh, I think it goes back to the stakes thing, the motivation. Because again, it's I mean, as much as I, I think you don't necessarily have to have it because I don't think Michael Myers has any reason. He's just kind of crazy. Jason, yeah. Made, yeah. Uh, Jason, they killed his mother. That's his, yeah. Yeah, but she killed them, so it was... Because they killed him. Yeah. <laughs> that one gets a little muddled. A couple of writers worked on that. On different... They didn't kill them themselves. It was the other, it was the other people. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Um, well, what can you tell me about season five? Uh, it comes out April 6th, I believe, is the date. Um on Hollywood suite in Canada and on shutter in the United States. Um, and I guess around the world where it's, where it has the, uh, the licensing. Um, it's Eric McCormick's our star it's period piece and it's called slasher ripper. Yeah. I saw someone online said that it, that it, it has some Jack the Ripper is, is that, is it have anything to do with Jack the Ripper or is it just that rippers in the title that people are going with that? Uh, well, I mean, Jack the Ripper was killing in that time period, but um, not in Toronto that we know of. But there is... Oh, it's set in it Toronto. It is set in Toronto, but there are the suspicions, right, where the Ripper's the Ripper went quiet, that people are like, did the Ripper go to North America? Um, there's even yeah. that, I think there's a, even a, a sort of crazier theory of the guy who did the kills in... Um, the Chicago Times Fair, who did also come to Toronto, you know, is is that possibly the Ripper uh, traveling and all that kind of thing? Um, so yeah, it's 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 present in the show. And the show being a, a period piece for the the first time. I mean, I I think in other episodes you kind of flash back to like the nineties or eighties, right? But but in this case, you're going way back. Was that fun from sort of a production design standpoint to kind of get to recreate you know such an older time yeah it was a it was a um it was a big undertaking for sure but um fun because it was a look that we hadn't done yet on the show for sure right yeah because this is i mean the show is relatively speaking like primarily sort of contemporary right there's been very little terms of like going back in time to other than you know when someone was younger or something mm -hmm. like that yeah um and have you guys got further seasons already cracked you don't i know you can't tell me what they would be about but or, or do you kind of just only are you only able to sort of stay one season ahead at a time we have general ideas of things we have we have I, we have like um arenas that we find interesting that we would say oh that'd be that'd be like a cool and movies that we like like one of the movies that we both love that we would love to try to do a version of is el motel or motel l whatever mm -hmm. that movie was motel hell yeah 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 um and I'm, I, you guys, early in the show, you were on Chiller, you talked about. When did the move happen to Shudder? Was that, see, what season was that in? Uh, season four. Season four. So where was it? So one to three, where, because 
Chiller didn't last all that long, did it? Season one was on Chiller, and then they kind of closed down original productions, and it still exists. Um, and then season, then Netflix picked it up, had already picked it up for second window, and then they became our primary broadcaster along okay. with Hollywood Suite for seasons two and three. And then they let it go, and then Shudder picked it up in season four. Oh, okay. And so, and Super Channel was season one, and then Hollywood Suite's been our Canadian home since then. So, were there any were there any things you had to do to sort of adapt or adjust as it was switching networks, or were you just kind of left alone to do your thing? No, we were left alone to do our thing. But the the people at Shutter are are great a resource for us to keep us, you know, steering towards what they want or what they think their audience wants. Yeah, I mean, they know yeah. it's. It, it seems obvious to say, but no one ho- knows horror like them, and and I think they just have such a tight relationship with their audience. Like it's it's yeah. I mean, it, it shudders. You know, I know a lot of the guys there, and it's run by horror fans. They curate, you know, in a beautiful way for horror fans. It's I mean, it's a perfect home for a show like Slasher. Really yeah, they've been amazing. Last question here. I just wondered, uh, outside of the next season of Slasher, if you guys have anything else on the table that you're working on that you want to bring up or talk about or mention. We've got things that we're percolating on, but we're not. We don't know, they're not at anywhere near a stage where we can talk yeah. about them. But we like working together. <laughs> yeah, we make each other laugh. Yeah, yeah, yeah. There's there's plans afoot, but who knows? Well, when when. You get to the stage where you can talk about it. I hope you guys will come back and tell me about whatever it is you got going on because I love Slasher and I, I think it's it's keep 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 doing it the way you guys are doing it. I think the fans are really, you know, I, I see so much. I go out at a lot of conventions. I interact with fans all the time and Slasher has developed such a, a, a strong, loyal following. And I think it's just, you know, because of the commitment you guys have to crafting a strong story with characters people can root for even if they they don't always like them and you know so it's it's just i'm really excited for the next season awesome yeah we're we're looking it's it's gonna it's it's really good all right guys thank you so much thank Thank you. you all right talk later You've been listening to Kevin Lane Spill Your Guts with host and filmmaker Kevin Lane. Kevin Lane Spill Your Guts was created by Kevin Lane, produced by Jason Hill, and edited by Justin Beam. The Spill Your Guts theme and incidental music was created by composer Mike Haddon. Original artwork and design elements generously provided by Matthew Terrian. Spill Your Guts is only made possible by the support of listeners like you. And the most important thing that you can do to ensure that these amazing interviews keep coming is to simply get the word out. You can find us on Facebook by searching Kevin Lane Spill Your Guts, on Instagram by searching one word, Spill Your Guts underscore podcast, and Twitter at Spill Your Guts underscore one, as in the number one. So post, comment, share, like, but don't forget. There's still no substitute for good old-fashioned word of mouth. The best way you can support what we do is to just tell people about us. Your friends, your family, your co-workers, whomever. Anyone with a pair of ears and a taste for guts. This has been Kevin Lane's Spill Your Guts. Thanks for listening. <laughs>